Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. On this week's show, we answer listener questions on topics like competing against a 900-pound gorilla, splitting from your co-founder, and whether there is such a thing as having enough features in your app. And I welcome Jeff Epstein back on the show to help me answer your questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 462. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Jeff Epstein, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made in the past. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. Thanks for joining me. Each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups in order to provide ourselves with a better life, improve the world in a small way. We strive to have a positive impact on other people, be it your customers, your team, your family. We're ambitious founders, but we're not willing to sacrifice our life, our health, or our families to grow a company. We have several show formats for Startups for the Rest of Us. Uh, you know, Every month or two, Mike Tabor comes on and, and updates us on his entrepreneurial journey. We also have some tactic and teaching episodes I do some interviews now and again, founder hot seats. And today's episode is all about listener questions. So it's questions from you and folks like you who are listening and they write in or send an audio question and we do our best to think it through. I really think about what would I do in their shoes and then answer the question. So Jeff Epstein comes to join me today. And if you remember back to episode 453, we talked through his journey as a non-technical founder of building a SaaS app to between five and 10 million ARR and then exiting that. So he had a, a pretty you know, stressful and impactful journey, life-changing journey for him. And he has a lot of experience under his belt. And so I think you'll enjoy the questions that we answer today. Before we dive into the questions, I want to remind you that MicroConf Minneapolis is next April 19th through 23rd, so you're going to want to block those dates off on your calendar. Also let you know, again, that the Tiny Seed application process opens on November 1st. It'll run for about a month, so if you're interested in potentially being part of our next batch, enter your email at tinyseed.com, as well as tease again about my secret podcast project I've been working on for about three or four months and I hope you uh, enjoy that. I'll have more info on that as I get more of that produced. Just want it to be a bit further along, you know, before I start putting stuff like that out in public. So with that, let's dive into our listener questions today. So Jeff, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, we have some good questions to run through today. The first was from Twitter. I actually did a kind of a casual call for questions to see, you know, after your episode went live, if anyone had a question for you. And Fuego Online sent this question. He said, did Jeff Epstein feel way out of his depth? I know I do sometimes and I have a technical partner. Yeah. So, so definitely out of my depth many times, not necessarily as much being technical or not technical, but I think it just depends on the stage of the business. But for me, that probably happened pretty regularly where you, where you feel that way. I think that's really common. I think I feel way out of my depth most most of the time that I'm doing something interesting and I'm learning and it's stretching me. I say I feel out of my depth. He said way out of your depth, which I, I do think is a, a differentiation, right? It's like there's comfort zone and then there's like almost at breaking point. And I have to imagine there was a moment, there were several moments over your eight or nine year journey that you were on the edge, you know, of like, oh my gosh, this might not work or, oh my gosh, this is the most stressed I've ever felt. I mean, is there a time you could take us to? Yeah. So I, I think for me, I certainly felt 
over my head in many scenarios. And, and like you said, Rob, I'm a first time founder. So everything is essentially new for me. As we grow, there are new challenges ahead. And there are so many situations where I felt that way. I think, I think two probably stick out in terms of really kind of kind of a horrible feeling of, you know, what did I get myself into? One was, you know, when we kind of changed co-founders pretty early on before we even kind of finished fundraising, the early employee uh, and I kind of didn't see eye to eye and, and he left the company. And that was, I was kind of left with not much in terms of, of a team. So that was one scenario. And then another one was actually much later, maybe five years later. And it was when I think for the first time you realize that there's a lot of things happening that you're not aware of. And this is when we were about 20 people or so. And it was one of those situations where you're like, wow, it's this, I really need to step up my game. And, and basically what happened was there's just a lot of people that weren't happy with, you know, some people in the company or just the way things were. And a lot of it was my fault. Some of it, some of it, I didn't, frankly, didn't know about and didn't have the communication structure in place to, to solve those things or to, to get the feedback channels filtered up to myself. And so that was a really eye-opening experience and pretty painful. But the one thing I would say is I'm pretty confident in myself being able to learn quickly. And I think that's for better, for worse, kind of my superpower, so to speak, where if I just have the information, I figure I can, I can do something pretty well with it. So for me, it was just a matter of figuring out what the issues are, what the problems are, and then what, what are the available options to like start fixing it. And I think when that happens, I, I think I've done pretty well. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I keep saying on the show, like more than half of, of being a successful entrepreneur is managing your own psychology. And, and part of that is believing that you can get it done and, and taking things that seem like roadblocks and saying, well, how, how do I turn these into speed bumps? You know, how, what are the five, six, seven options here? No matter how bad, no matter how good, lay them all out and just, and, and look at it and, and move ahead. So it's, there's, it's like having confidence in yourself that you can figure this out. You know, there are so few things that are actually company ending. There are, are obviously a few, but so many of them, I think in our heads, I know I've done this, you just catastrophize it, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. The company's, uh, what have I built? And it's like, well, this, this will be done in like three days. If you handle it well, you know, if you actually do the right thing, it'll be, it'll smooth over and be done in a week or whatever. So awesome. So let's dive into our next question. And it is a voicemail about competing in a space where there is an 800 pound gorilla, namely Shopify. Hi, Rob. Uh, this is Ahmed from Toronto, Canada. I have a question regarding starting a startup in a very competitive space like, say, e-commerce, specifically competing with a company like Shopify, which is pretty much a company that has been doing everything right in terms of technology, focusing on, like, they're targeting the low-end low market. They also have Shopify Plus targeting more enterprise customers. They have a core set of features, which are then built upon by app developers. They have like a market effect with agencies. They have a like a very good content marketing um, strategy on their blog. And they're dealing with B2B customers who might not be as price sensitive as like a B2C customer. So considering all these things, do you think it's possible still to carve out a niche within the e-commerce space and compete with a company like Shopify? Thanks. Bye. So what, what do you think, Jeff? This is a tough question, obviously, but uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's certainly not an area where I would I would necessarily look to to start a company. I think if you have one, if you're if you're growing and doing and doing well, there's certainly going to be opportunities. 
I'm a fundamental believer that companies such as Shopify or Amazon, there are always, they always have blind spots, right? And they have specific uh, areas which don't make sense for them to focus on, which allows for niche businesses to spring up and kind of serve those needs. So I think if you're looking to start, it wouldn't be my top choice. But if you are already building a brand in a company and you have customers, I would say focus on why the customers are choosing you or why they're considering you and make sure that you really hone in on those areas so that you can kind of continue in that in that niche market for now. Yeah, I love the answer of blind spots. That's that's the first thing that came to my mind is it's where are the disgruntled Shopify customers? Like go to the forums. When you get this big, you you know, you you've heard of like quickbooksucks.com where everybody rags on QuickBooks. Like is there one of those for Shopify? You know, where are the disgruntled people who say, "Oh, Shopify doesn't do this well" or they, like you said, it's not worth their time to go into whether it's a vertical niche or whether it's to build a certain type of feature or whether they have the, you know, just technical debt or just, you know, thousands of lines of code or tens of thousands and and tens of thousands of customers and you just can't change things overnight. So, I mean, this is the playbook that we did with Drip, right? When we launched Drip, it was a mess. Like think of, not Drip itself, the market, just think of MailChimp, their dominance with their free plan, right? Free up to 2,000 subscribers. How do you enter, possibly enter that and charge, you know, at that level? We had Infusionsoft, Pardot, Marketo. Those are all the marketing automation providers. We had Constant Contact and Aweber who, you know, had their own niches, right? It was like the SMB was Constant Contact and Aweber was more in the, like the info marketer space. And so no one in their right mind would enter that space. And yet we found ourselves competing against them. And and it was exactly what, what we've talked about here is we looked at people didn't like Infusionsoft because they charged this $2,000 upfront fee because they were $300 a month and up because they were aggressive with their sales because the product was not very good. It was hard to use. It was buggy. And then, you know, MailChimp, a company I've always respected, wasn't moving fast enough with the automation. Like people wanted to be able to click a link and move your, you know, from here and there. There were features that they, people wanted from like the Infusionsofts, but that MailChimp and Aweber were not building. And so we, as a startup, what's the advantage? Like one of your advantages is you move so quickly. And so we could build and launch automations in months, whereas it took them literally years. And that's, to me, the advantage is once you find you know, it's not an Achilles heel because it's not like you're going to kill them, right? The, the metaphor doesn't quite work, but it's it's a vulnerability or, you know, as you said, just a, a slice, a blind spot that even if they are moving there, they haven't gotten there yet. And that's what I would look at. I don't know the e-commerce space well enough to know what those are for Shopify, but I do know that that's, that's what I'd be looking for. One thing I would add, Robin, I think this is where you had a ton of ability to kind of see the future was that you were in, you were looking at marketing automation companies for, for yourself, right. And in, in, in sort of to leverage them. And I think if you're going to get into a, this type of business, it's more than like an intellectual exercise. I think the person needs to actually know or have a, their own specific pain. You know, I, I, I think that would be really big here instead of just kind of guessing, right. That they maybe are a power user or have an e-commerce item that they're selling and they're looking for another way to do something that they can't do with Shopify. I think that would be a really great way to, to start. Yeah, it's a good point. If if you're going to enter a less competitive space, you don't always need to be your first user. You don't always need to build for your own pain. But if you're going to enter a space like uh, competing against Shopify or Mailchimp, like I would never say always, but I would say it's a really good idea. It's another tool in, you know, in your tool belt to have that domain expertise. So, thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. 
Our next question comes from Nick. He's got a couple questions. He has some kind words about the podcast to start. He says, I love the refreshed format of the podcast. Insightful, and you can really feel a new surge of energy. Well done. Thanks for continuing to make it such a great show. Then he transitions into talking about his business. He says, each stage of my business has brought fresh challenges. And right now I have a couple questions. It would be great to hear your thoughts on. So the first question is this, splitting from a co-founder when your business is successful. And Jeff, we know your story and we know this that, that you went through this. So I'm curious to hear your take. So he says, my co-founder and I have been in business together for 12 years. Initially, we ran a successful niche consulting firm before pivoting into a product business in 2016. Our product is a B2B app that helps financial companies. It's growing slowly and steadily. We've just hit $1 million in ARR. Congrats on that, by the way. While I'm loving the product journey, my co-founder feels differently. He's 20 years older than I am, and he wants to do other things with his time. Our working relationship has probably run its course, but he feels his best exit is to market the business for sale, and I don't share that view. While I'm open to doing it, I'd like to keep my options open. We've been fortunate to find product market fit, and while our addressable market is small, I feel our business has further to run. I've looked at options to buy him out, but he would want a market-level multiple evaluation, which is significant. He's also not keen on acting as a silent partner. Currently, I hold a majority stake. I am willing to buy more shares, but would also appreciate a new strategic partner who can add value in our sector. What would be my best course of action? I don't know that we can recommend the best course of action, but I do think that we can bat bat around a few ideas because I don't don't think this is uh, necessarily clear cut. What are your thoughts, Jeff? So my, in my former life, and and I went to, you know, I'm an attorney, so I went to law school and talked to quite a bit of founders. And one thing that is so important, having been through it myself, is understanding how you can unwind or exit a business from from a founder perspective, right? Especially when you're close to 50-50, which... It, it's not clear here, but it sounds like that the, the founders have a pretty large stake each, and one of them obviously is a majority. So that's that's always challenging. So your best course of action, again, it depends on a lot of factors. One is, do you want to retain a good relationship with this person going forward? And also, how much of a hassle do you want to have in terms of managing this process versus running the business, right? Legally, again, I don't know your operating agreement. You should have one. Kind of the rules of, of what you're allowed to do or able to do are probably contained in there. But generally, as a majority owner, you have most of the most of the power. So you certainly would be able to block or not have a sale if the business happen. A couple of things that I would think of off the top of my head is maybe try to find an independent, you know, someone who can value the business in, in a fair way. I mean, everyone loves to sell to, to say, oh, let's just sell, even if it's a house or some other asset. The reality is it's a lot harder than it seems, and it usually sells for a lot less than you expect. So I, I think that like, having gone through a business sale, it's not at all what you expect. And, and, and I'm sure Rob can say the same thing. And so just putting a number on it, I, I think from the minority perspective, that's probably not the best outcome. So again, I, I think Ultimately, hopefully, you guys can sit down and come to a conclusion. You might have to get creative in terms of an earnout or payments over a period of years, and or maybe phasing out the hours worked. That would be my recommended course of action: is come to the table and figure something out as partners instead of trying to go the legal route. But again, as a majority partner, I think you should know that you probably do have the upper hand in some in some way based on you are the majority and you probably have the voting. Uh, ability to to do things that might not be favorable for your for your co-founder. Yeah, I th- I think you're you're dead on with that. I think you look at the operating agreement. Typically it says like 
other founders have the first right of refusal. If you get an offer, they have to match that, that kind of stuff. So to me, there's a lot of ways you could go, but I, I kind of feel like there's three options. One, you could just sell the whole business. And as you said, Jeff, that might take six months or a year to do. And then, you know, you lose the asset, but you get cash. And then you know what fair market value is. There's no quibbling over it. You'd run a pro- full process, right? And by the way, Nick, if you want to do that, ping me back. I know some people who who do things like that for $1 million ARR SaaS companies. And they run a full process and, and get, you know, good revenue multiples for them. The other option that I think about is, like you said, Jeff, an earnout. Like figure out a fair, you know, have someone assess it or try to get some offers and then use that as the the assessed value in essence, and then try to buy them out over time, right? Now, you're not going to pay them. If, let's just say $2 million is what we value the business at, well, you owe them a million bucks. You're not going to pay them that today unless I, you know, unless you have that in the bank, but, you know, can you pay them a hundred grand a quarter for the next 10 quarters or something? I have seen that done, not often, but I have seen it done with some tech businesses in the past. And then the other option I think about is, I don't know, it may sound complicated, but it's finding someone to just buy his share. And that again would be, you you need to try to look for market or assessed value. And then if he owns X percent, then you try to find someone that you'd be willing to work with, whether they are a silent partner or not, but they buy in and then they can, you know, as you take dividends out, they also you know are able to participate in that. So those are kind of the, I think off the top of my head, those are the three options I'd be looking at. And they, of course, each of them comes with different timelines and different complexities you have any other thoughts? No, I think those are great, great options and a really good summary of what uh, Nick can, can probably do, to be honest. Nick has another question um, about the app. So obviously it's, it's a three-year-old B2B app. It's generating a million in ARR with 15 enterprise customers. So it's a small customer base. It solves a simple but important problem for insurance companies. With 12 to 18 month sales cycles, we are growing slowly but steadily in our niche market and have three developers. Thus far, we have been customer led, relying on customer development to identify and prioritize features. However, with our 10th release, things have slowed down. The app is stabilizing, support tickets have dropped off, feature requests are drying up. We hold a user forum twice a year and have delivered the most requested items in our last release. We tried tabling some more radical ideas at our last meetup, but the feedback from several power users was that we shouldn't mess with it. And to keep things simple, is there such a state as having enough features? How do we know what to build next? Should we refocus on technical debt? As ever, your thoughts are appreciated. What do you think? I do think there are probably times when it makes sense to focus on technical debt or that it may not be time to just add more features, right? Like I think that 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 makes sense. I don't know if that's a constant state. I think there can be points in time. And I think saying that the business is tickets are slow or, or things like that, to me, those, you know, running a business is a fluid situation and it's always changing, right? So I wouldn't suggest a full stop. Perhaps it's time to think about some some ways which you can grow the business, but it also comes down to what you want to do from a business perspective. You could add, you know, features that allow you to to find a new customer segment, or you can say, hey, we just want to deliver the product faster and essentially get rid of some of this technical debt. I think that's a a decision that as a business owner you have to make. And there's no right or wrong answer. It really just depends on what your goals are. But having no more requirements, so to speak, from customers is, I think, typically a pretty good thing. But again, I again, I don't know your background and how you started the business, but there are many cases where businesses are started or features are added 
that are not suggested by the by the users per se, right? They're something that the business the the users don't know can exist or should exist or or do exist. But I, I think it's a good position to be, and I congratulate you on getting to that point. That's pretty rare, even for a brief time. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. It feels to me like you know every software product, every tech product has a, a life cycle and. When you first build it, there's not enough features and it's clunky. And then eventually you get to kind of product maturity. And then eventually you get to where it sunsets, you know, and where it's just, it's too old. 20, 30, 40 year old code bases, while I know they still run a lot of the IRS and, and our social security system here in the in the US and probably, uh, you know, in many countries around the world, I'm saying most, guessing most SaaS apps aren't going to make it that long, right? The code base is either going to go clunk or the market's going to change so dramatically or there'll be a new, you know, entirely new form of of servicing those needs. But with that in mind, it sounds like th- there is a chance. I mean, three years is fast. Typically, I would expect it to be like 10 or 15 years because I think, of, you know, I think of a tool like Fogbugs, right? Or Basecamp, right? When you're around a SaaS app that's around 10 or 15 years, you do eventually hit a point where, huh, we don't necessarily need new features, but like our UX paradigms are five or 10 years old. So you need to revamp that. You know, you have UX technical debt in essence or UX debt or just technical debt. It's like if you were built in classic ASP or, you know, PHP 1.0 or something, you would want to go back and refactor those. Given that your code base is only three years old, that's, yeah, it's unusual, but it's not not out of the realm of possibility. And so I think I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, Jeff, in that I would, well, there's a couple things I would think about. One, you could focus on technical debt now while you figure out what your vision for the product is, like what what is it that you can build that they're not asking for, right? We, you know, oftentimes it's it's a mix of customer requests, internal like employee requests, and founder vision, right, or CEO vision. Those are kind of the three things that I have have most often built into a product, right? And so, do you know? Do you have a vision for something else? And if not, then yeah, why not technical debt or why not put more funds into either marketing or sales? And and you could, you know, I know there's long sales cycles, but can you double or triple the number of conversations you're having such that you know someone's closing every every three months instead of every six months if you double that? So I don't think it's a bad thing to take a little break and maybe give the team time to you know to go back and and circle up. It'll become obvious when you need to add more features, I think, because customers will be asking for it or there'll be a competitor that you see doing something that is kind of starting to take your customers or at least a competitor that's getting ahead of you. And that's, you know, that's the time where you start thinking about heading back to features. I would actually add one more thing that I was thinking about. I think you do have an opportunity to also ask your customers, and I think it depends on the question you're asking, right? If it's, what else do you want? Maybe they say nothing, but if you ask it or you frame it as, what else are you paying for? Or what else are you doing? Or what else would you pay for? Perhaps maybe there are some different answers there. So maybe it's just the way that you're gathering the feedback that you can just tweak it a little bit and maybe get some some insights from customers of things that are maybe closely related, things that you could build that would be immediately paid for so that, that they can kind of pay for the development itself. Nice. So thanks again for those questions, Nick. Our next question comes from Evan, and he's asking about a single-use niche product. And he says, first-time caller, long-time listener. Honestly, I love listening to you guys. Here's my question. I built a script for a company I worked for, realized how much other people could use it, and then in my spare time, I refactored the idea and turned it into an enterprise product. I've been officially launched for almost two months, and I've done just under 6K in revenue, and 98% of that is profit, which I would expect you kind of probably have no expenses aside from hosting or something. The problem is that this is a single-use product that I've essentially built to use when people are migrating to another software package. It's really not worth the plug because it's so niche, he says. Anyways, 
I'm really trying to figure out how much time I should be putting into this thing. Obviously, the other software company that, you know, is a migration tool, right, to software company X. So software company X could just roll out their own migration tool and kill my revenue overnight. However, they've played pretty nice thus far and have featured my product in quite a few support articles and have started to build it into their support flow for when they get tickets regarding the problem. Would you recommend continuing to make this product better and attempting to figure out how I could possibly get recurring revenue or just take it for what it is, single-use product that does what it does, and that is right now, it's the only tool out there that does this. 6K in almost two months isn't a ton of money. I make decent money at my full-time job as a software developer, but it is pretty nice supplemental income. So that's our question, Jeff. What do you think? So to me, it seems like this is great. You know, I mean, you know, I think sometimes people may overanalyze kind of what's going on. To me, this sounds exactly, it, it, it seems pretty straightforward. Like it seems like he solved a really great problem with something that was pretty simple. And it's a one single use product that probably is a problem that this company is facing. And it doesn't make sense for them to really spend any time or money on it. So they're more than happy to find a solution that, that does the job for their customers. As long as you're not kind of bragging about how much money you're making, I think, to the world, and it doesn't seem like it's enough where, you know, the company would would want to build this. To me, it seems like a really awesome revenue stream that that you have for the foreseeable future. That being said, it doesn't sound like, and again, there's very little context in terms of what, what it can do or how you could turn this into a recurring business. I would say I wouldn't over-engineer it or over overthink it. I would just capitalize on what you can earn and, you know, throw a little bit of money in the in the marketing and see if you can attract more people to want to use this. I mean, I think this is this is awesome. You know, why I don't know what you think, Rob, but I, to me I think it's pretty straightforward. It's, it doesn't seem like there's much there to, to do a company unless you want to really start building other features and tools around that. And I don't know what it is to be honest without all the context. I agree with you. This is um what a fortuitous thing you stumbled into. That's cool. Like three grand a month while you say it's it's not a lot of money. If you're working full time, it sure wouldn't be. But that makes most people's house payment. I mean, that's that's such a great it's it's the step one of the stair step approach, to be honest. Like, you know, for those who who are unfamiliar, the stair step approach to bootstrapping is is something I laid out in a talk at Dynamite Circle five years ago now, and then I blogged about it. But it's basically, you know, you start off, don't don't go for SaaS right away, don't go for recurring revenue. It's too hard, too complicated, takes a long time, just all these things are against you. But if you if you find a niche and you can build a WordPress plugin or uh, you know another one-time use thing like this import tool or a Shopify app or you know whatever it is find something where there's a single sales channel and it's going to plateau you know, I did this with .NET Invoice where it was like, hey, it's a downloadable software. I got 300 bucks a pop for it. And really there were some SEO and AdWords, but that was about it. The market was not huge for it. And this sounds very similar. And so now you have this opportunity to, to then take that and parlay it up into something bigger if you want. And you could potentially build on this. It doesn't sound like you, you, know, you have direct ideas on how to do that, but I don't think this needs to become your big thing. You know, This can become 36 grand a year going into a, a bank account that you then use to buy a bigger app. Or this becomes learning. Have you learned how to do copywriting, toy around with you know, LinkedIn and, and Google AdWords? Have you ever done that before? Because now's your chance to learn on a real product that has enough budget you can play with and not worry about chewing through your paycheck. So I see this as an opportunity to, to stair-step if you do eventually want to get to recurring, whether, again, whether this turns into it just by, you know, I keep saying doing things in public creates opportunity, right? And this is something you've done in public. And 
it's a way that, you know, you never know what the next customer is going to ask for, you know, that brings a light bulb of like, oh, wow, that would be a crazy thing I could add to this that would double the value or that would make it recurring. So I, I think that's, I think this is all upside personally. And frankly, longer term, maybe you wind up selling it to company X, you know, the, the one that it's a migration tool for them. So why wouldn't they, if you were like, Hey, I'm just going to shut this thing down in their shoes, I would buy the thing from you, you know? So maybe you wind up having a, you know, an exit. I mean, if it's only doing 36 K a year, maybe your exit is for hundred K or 150 K or something. But I mean, still like this is the, it's worth something. So I, I feel like you've, you've gotten further than so many software entrepreneurs, you know, or aspiring entrepreneurs ever get. So I think you're in a great place and have a, a really pretty cool resource that you can now use to parlay up that that stair step and, you know, maybe eventually buy out your own time and then, you know, get get into recurring revenue as well. Love it. It's all profit almost. It's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. I wouldn't wouldn't sell yourself short at all. You know, I mean, again, it might not be the the idea, but like Rob said, parlay that into something bigger if you want, right? Like I think having flexibility and optionality is huge. So do I think reading the question again, like, I don't know if it's something that you, you know, you don't quit your job over, but keep milking it and see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, me from 20 years ago, I would have killed to own a software product that did three grand a month in net profit. Like that was my goal early on, you know, it was like, I just want to make, well, first it was like, I just want to make my car payment, making money on the internet, you know? And then it was like, I just want to make my house payment. And then it was like, I just want to cover my salary so I can quit my job. I mean, this is, yeah, I envy his position. So hope those thoughts were helpful. Our last question of the day comes from Will, and he says, hey guys, I've been mulling some stuff over for a bit, and I've noticed something. The more I do my own projects on the side for money, the more I feel like I'm not as good of an employee. That doesn't mean I don't work hard and deliver, but I've noticed that after a certain point, I start to really have to fight a desire to rock the boat at my day job. For instance, I notice stuff like the following, and he has a list. So, Companies using large numbers of developer hours to avoid having to pay $20 a month for a tool. Companies building their own internal tools when extremely cheap options exist, like time trackers. Companies having really broken internal processes that would completely destroy a startup, but they chug along on momentum. So these must be non-startups like bigger companies. Companies having highly technical products that are sold by people who don't understand what the technology does. Companies having no idea what their sales funnel looks like, what their customer lifetime value is, etc. I guess what I'm saying is that the process of going entrepreneurial has forced me to re-examine the things that made me a good employee, only to find that a lot of them don't really suit where I'm headed. I usually don't mention these things when I notice them as a developer because people don't really like devs jumping in on this stuff, but they bug me a lot. Did either of you undergo a similar epiphany at some point? And if you did, what were the main things you had to unlearn as part of making the transition to your own products? I think it's easy to become a little too domesticated inside the walls of a cubicle, and I'm wondering what else I should be doing to try to avoid that. That's an interesting question. What do you think, Jeff? So I love this question because it's something that I've, that I've seen quite a bit. And it's, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute. So there's, a, I think, a couple things to unpack here. I, I love the self-awareness or, or the idea that, and I think for many companies, right, obviously it depends, but I think culturally you should find yourself and hope to find yourself at a company that wants to improve, right? So first and foremost, and if that's the case, then I think pointing out things that can be better isn't rocking the boat. It's sort of doing your job. And I think the mindset that you're rocking the boat hopefully is, isn't correct, right? That being said, there's a way to do these things. And even just reading this, it looks like a lot of things are black and white. And what I always used to say to the engineering team is I know like a lot of times writing code and, and engineering mindset tends to be black and white, but business is really shades of gray. So there are probably 
dozens of factors that you're not considering from a sales funnel perspective, especially not being in the sales team or the way that company spends money, right? So what I would suggest is I would find an, an outlet to say, hey, I have some things that I've noticed that could help the business. At so, someone in the company should say, that's important enough to listen to, but I wouldn't just assume that you're right or that you don't that you have all the information, right? I think a lot of times there were plenty of things that we did from a business perspective, and again, we were much smaller, that for many people thought was the absolute opposite thing we should be doing. But many times when you explain to them why, and that, you know, one of our one of our cultural values was understand why, then they're like, oh, I never ever thought about that. And it's like, yeah, that's okay. Like I didn't expect you to think about it, but that's that's kind of why we're doing this. And I think it's a I, th- I think it creates a lot of challenges inside companies when we used to say we don't we don't want know-it-alls in the organization. Like be curious, understand why, and then be helpful, right? Like anyone in the company is going to want to save money or know that things can be done differently. But sometimes, again, there's red tape and other reasons why things can't get done the minute that it makes sense for for someone. I think your advice is uh, better than what I was going to say. I was going to go from my own experience, whereas your, well, yours is from your own experience as well, but- Mine is too, right. <laughs> yeah, but but yours is from the company side. And I think that's a really good point, you know, of, of don't assume that you're right. I think that's that's really good advice. I was going to say as an employee, when as I became entrepreneurial, I absolutely had the exact same thing. It wasn't with sales and everything, but I became more and more disgruntled and frustrated with development and with them hiring crappy developers we had to work with and the code was buggy. They wouldn't let us go refactor. There was, I mean, this was 2000, let's say three to 2006. I got so annoyed that I, I would quit jobs over not feeling fulfilled. It was not, it wasn't just like, Oh, I'm building dumb software. Cause I was fine to build the software I didn't care about, but it was like not working with pro- the processes were broken and no one would fix them. Right. So what I did was left and I went to either started, I can started consulting because then I could control the processes or I would go find another job where the processes weren't broken. Right. So I, so I mean, kind of, I'm going to be a little bit broad here, but like, if you don't want to see those things you're seeing, then don't work at like a fortune 5,000 company, like go work for a startup, go work for a small company. I mean, they, not that all of them have it figured out, but in general, smaller teams have less dysfunction in general, you know, there, there's less politics, there's less of all the, the broken stuff. And frankly, there's more of a mindset of, of let's fix this stuff. You know, there's less inertia and there's less, we do it this way because we've always done it this way. And there's more, let's try to make it better. Again, I'm generalizing, but that's, if I were in your shoes and, and, you know, you could take Jeff's advice, which I think is great, or you could take mine or you could take Jeff's and then take mine. If it doesn't turn out well, (laughs) this is what we're doing, Jeff. We're getting, getting people to quit their jobs. No, no, I actually, I think the advice is complimentary too. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like really the first part of what I said is you should find a a cultural fit, right? And I think that's the challenge is like if a company, and you also have to remember the trade-offs, right? So a stodgy, slow moving company probably is just inherently more stable. If you look out five years, maybe not 50 years. So you may make more money there or you may have better benefits there. So like those are personal trade-offs that you have to make. And it, listen, if you want everything done exactly your way, there's only one way to do that. And that's to start a company. But let me tell you, very soon after you start it, it won't be your way anymore. Once you have other people you have to answer to, whether it's investors, employees. So that's just the reality. You know, I mean, if you want something on your own, you know, you can have do a side project. But I, I, I totally agree with Rob, like set yourself up for success in terms of aligning with how the company is going to work. And, and again, these are questions that ideally you're finding out in the interview process. Like you don't want to be surprised when you start. So like do your diligence and find out, uh, especially if you're a developer, you have a lot of options 
for places to work. It's the lowest employment in a long time. So, and, and, and I know everyone's looking for technical talent. So you're in a good position, but again, I, I wouldn't shy away from or train yourself away from speaking up, but I think there's a time and a place, right? Like don't like complain in front of the whole team. Like that's not the way to get it done. Like privately message someone who can help or, or say, who can I speak to about these things? I'd love to make some things better. At some point in the organization, someone's going to raise their hand and say, we should listen or we should take this into consideration. So that again, that's, that's my two cents, but that's good. And I think, you know, I have this uh, personal adage that I don't know that I've ever said this or I've written about it or said it, and I'm sure I swiped it from a business book or something, but it's to say or do positive things in public and negative things in private. If you're going to reward or congratulate someone on a good job, do that in public so that everyone knows. And if you're going to tell someone that they're screwing up on the job, do that in private. And that's actually one reason I have such an issue with Twitter, to be honest, is everyone not everyone it is the there's so much open public negativity and it's like why didn't you just email me a lot of times you know it's like there'll be someone you know and they're like complaining about you or your company or something you did and you're just like dude just email me and we can talk about this a i would fix it b i didn't know what was going on why do you have to yell at the top of your lungs from your rooftop telling everyone how i screwed up and so that i think this is a good case of that and you and you just you know the reason i started saying that is because you brought up like don't raise all these things in a big public meeting with eight or 10 people. That's ba- It's bad form, man. It's rude. And I would I would not be happy with that. And so set up a one-on-one or a one-on-two with supervisors who, you know, are mature and can handle, handle hearing this kind of stuff. One thing to add to, and I don't know if it's helpful, but we can, I found the people that wanted to help the business in a positive way are the best employees. But on the flip side, the people that complained, which it's a very fine line, the people that complained publicly were the always the worst employees. So it's like a really fine line, right? And they both like arguably wanted to help, but the people that like were just like, this is wrong or this is bad. Like it was, it's so frustrating, man. Like to, you know, just to think about some of those situations where people are like, you know, after they left, they would maybe a glass door post or something where like, hey, you can't do these things. You can't do this. And it's like, yeah, well, no, you don't need to talk about publicly at lunch how, you know, 40 people, how something's wrong when, it's a, it's a minor thing that can, that can be addressed in five minutes. So yeah. Negativity is, is kind of toxic and it spreads. Right. So for sure. Well, thanks again, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. Yeah. My pleasure. And if folks want to catch up with you, you are at Jeff underscore Epstein on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks Rob. And if you have a question for the show, leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690, or you can email us an MP3 or a Dropbox link to a WAV file, or even a text question to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. If you're not already subscribed to us, you should search for startups in whatever podcatcher you use and subscribe. And you can visit startupsfortherestofus.com to get on our mailing list. We don't email that often, but when we do, it's, it's tasty, yummy goodness. And you can also get transcripts of each episode. I think they're about an episode or two behind right now. But those some folks really like transcripts and actually have used a hack to like search our website using the site colon, you know, in Google to just to figure out if we've talked about a topic. Because with 462 episodes, we've covered a lot of lot of ground on this show. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.